Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. In the early days of the State of Israel, during the late 1940s and 1950s, hundreds of thousands of Jews from Middle Eastern Arab countries, as well as from North Africa, immigrated to Israel. But when these immigrants, who came to be known as Mizrahi, or Eastern Jews, arrived in Israel, they were not exactly welcomed with open arms by their fellow Jews of Ashkenazi, or European heritage. The Ashkenazi Zionists in power were fascinated by the Mizrahi arrivals, but also saw them as backward and primitive, contrary to the image of the new Jew the state was meant to foster. Consequently, many Mizrahi Jews were treated as second-class citizens. Two incidents in particular provide evocative examples. One is known as the Yemenite Children's Affair, which involved several thousand children of Yemenite Jewish immigrants being taken by Israeli authorities to hospitals for treatment, and the families then later being told by hospital staff that their children had died. The second incident involved several thousand Mizrahi immigrants being treated for ringworm by exposure to radiation, which put them at risk for complications in the future. Although the Yemenite Children's Affair and the Ringworm Affair, as they've come to be known, happened nearly 70 years ago, they are still very much alive in the hearts and minds of the many Mizrahi Jews who seek what is known in the world of legal scholarship as transitional justice. Transitional justice refers to the aims and the tools that a state use to confront past injustices, like, for example, what happened with the residential school in Canada. We look back to our past and we're trying to figure out whether we can confront injustices that occurred in the past, whether we can compensate the victims, whether we can uh, do an healing process. This is Inbal Blau, a legal scholar and assistant professor at the Ono Academic College in Israel and a fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies. Her research project focuses on how the victims of the Yemenite children and ringworm affairs are using tort claims, that is, suing the state for damages in civil court, to seek transitional justice, Blau is exploring to what extent tort law is adequate to compensate for the harm the victims claim to have endured and to deliver to them the sort of justice they're seeking. To really understand what's at stake for the Mizrahi litigants and for the Israeli state, it's worth taking a closer look at both affairs. Between June 1949 and September 1950, nearly the entire Yemenite Jewish community immigrated to Israel in an operation planned by the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, known as Operation Magic Carpet. When they arrived in Israel and were temporarily housed in transit camps, many of the Yemenite infants and children were separated from their families and housed in children's units. When they were sick, they took them to hospitals. When the parents came a few days later to pick up their uh, children. They were told by the staff that the the children uh, are dead. 
but uh, without showing any bodies to the parents. And since then, it's a huge question in the Israeli society, what happens to those uh, children? It's hard to imagine the despair and sorrow the Yemenite families must have felt, not knowing why their children had died or where they were buried. To make matters worse, roughly 18 years later, many of the Yemenite families who had lost children received notices from the government informing them that their children were now eligible for serving in the army, which gave rise to theories that the government had lied about the Yemenite children having died. So the families described that some of the children were taken out of their hands without their approval. Some were put in the hospitals and the baby houses, and the families were told that they died. What happened to the children is not that clear. One of the theories is that those children were taken from their families and were given to other families for adoption. The Cadmus Inquiry Commission determined that some of the children were adopted, but that it wasn't an intentional or institutional adoption, but an occasional adoption. Many of the families still claim that the state behavior was intentional. Now, around the same time, during the late 1940s and 50s, the Israeli authorities were dealing with outbreaks of disease in the transit camps, which were breeding grounds for infection due to unsanitary conditions. One of the more common diseases was ringworm. It's a kind of fungal, a skin fungal disease, and most of the people who got this disease were children that got infected in the Ma'abarot, in the transitional camps. Israel treated this disease with a medical treatment called a kind Bochadamson, meaning a multiple radiation treatment. Several years later, researchers found that those types of radiation treatments could raise the risk for serious health problems. They found a connection between those treatments and uh, to a very severe diseases like uh, cancer, uh, thyroid cancer, etc. During the 90s, those uh, victims tried uh, to claim their rights uh, to, to talk about what happened to them. And also they started uh, a social struggle and also a legal struggle. The state's initial response to both the Yemenite children's affair and the ringworm affair was silence. But after decades of protest from the families involved, the Israeli government began to act. For example, to investigate what had happened to the Yemenite children, the state established three committees. The third and final committee, known as the Kedmi Commission, was established in 1995 and published its conclusions in 2001. It determined that most of the children had died and that mistakes were made and that some Yemenite children were, in fact, occasionally adopted and placed with other families. One of the explanations that the state suggested was that Israel was just established, everything was not settled, so that things could happen in the past. The other claim is that uh, their families abandoned their kids. They put them in the hospitals and they left them there. That's what the state claimed. And uh, they didn't come after a few days. And by that, uh, the medical staff didn't know what to do with these children. 
they also explained that they tried to do their best, but unfortunately, the children died. This is what the state claimed. But on the other end, the families keep on claiming that some of the children were taken out of the rents without their approval. They also claim that they came over and over to demand the children, but they were told that their babies died and the authorities' officers treated them condescendingly and with racism. When Mizrahi Jews who'd been treated with radiation for ringworm made claims against the state in the early 1990s, the government took a similar position. At the beginning, the, the victims submitted the tort claims uh, claiming that the state was negligent in uh, giving the treatment itself, but th- their claim were rejected due to a statute of limitation and also due to the claim that those treatments were the common ones at that time. In other words, the state argued that even though the radiation treatments were later found to raise the risk for cancer and other diseases, the authorities did the best they could with the resources they had during a chaotic period. And so, stymied in court, the victims lobbied for legislation to address their claims. And in 1994, Mizrahi Knesset member Amir Peretz sponsored the Law for Compensation of Scalp Ringworm Victims, which was voted into law. But Mizrahi activists criticized the law as inadequate. Writing in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz in 2004, columnist Aryeh Dayan claimed that, quote, Ten years after the legislation of the law that was designed to eliminate the resentment caused by the ringworm affair, it is apparently about to erupt again, and the victims are once again embarking on a battle, claiming that not only does the state pay absurd compensation, but it prevents even that small sum from reaching a large percentage of the victims, end quote. Meanwhile, the victims continued filing tort claims. They submitted different claims, and they alleged that, uh, okay, even though maybe it was the common treatment, during the 80s, the Israeli state already knew that we are a part of a risk group. So why the Israeli state didn't inform us so we will be able to treat ourselves to go through all kinds of examinations? This time, the argument worked. In a tort claim brought by one of the victims, Sima Ruven, in 2009, the court for the first time awarded damages to a victim of the ringworm affair. Several years later, in 2015, another victim, Tsipora Ibi, filed a tort claim against the government, a case that went all the way to the Israeli Supreme Court. The court found in favor of Ibi and, in the process, cemented the Sima Ruven case as precedent. Meanwhile, starting in 2015, Yemenite families had also been bringing tort claims against the Israeli state and against the Hebra Kedisha, or burial society. The claims were either rejected by the courts or settled out of court. Then, in 2021, the government approved a plan to compensate victims whose children had been taken decades ago. According to Blau, the compensation plan would not have been enacted if not for the tort claims flooding the courts. The tort claims put a lot of pressure on the state, and they had to deal with this question. What happened to the children? Are we going to compensate 
the families if we are going to compensate them or not. And uh, when you have a, a claim in court, you can postpone it. You need like to, to give answer to questions to the court. Uh, so it's a kind of a sword above your head. We have like lots of claims in the courts. We need to figure out how to solve this uh, problem. And uh, this is, uh, in my opinion, there is a, a deep connection between the tort claims and the, the Israeli governmental decision. And so many decades after the Yemenite children's affair and the ringworm affair happened, at least some of the victims have been compensated. But is monetary compensation adequate to address the nature of the harm? Have the victims of these incidents received transitional justice in the form of the state admitting that it was wrong? For Blau, the answer is no. If you ask the victims, they will tell you it's, it's nothing. There is no recognition, only monetary compensation, and they are keeping on fighting for recognition. But on the other end, one must ask himself, how come the Israeli state compensates someone when nothing happened? So if we go logically through this question, we can say that the compensation is a kind of recognition. No one will pay money without any fault, okay? This is my suggestion to look on the bright side of this compensation mechanism. The payment is a kind of recognition. In other words, in Blau's view, compensating the victims is better than nothing, but it doesn't get at the heart of what transitional justice is really about. Namely, the perpetrator of historical injustice accepting responsibility for their acts and publicly admitting their wrongdoing. The Israeli state, Blau says, has used compensation as a way to avoid taking responsibility. What happened here in, in these two injustices that we jumped above the process of healing, recognition, and the government, the Israeli state went directly to compensation. And moreover, this is a kind of a very uh, unique compensation. It's based on a no-fault liability. We'll go th immediately through to compensate the damage without admitting or recognize any negligent or any wrong, we, did, we won't talk about it. We'll just compensate. Moreover, I must point out that in both affairs, the compensation mechanisms in monetary value were reduced since it's social compensation. This is a kind of compensation that the state established in a legislation or, for example, in a governmental decision. And usually the compensation is reduced compared to what the victims could receive in court. The question then is why the state has not taken the opportunity to fully take responsibility and attempt to make amends with the victims. For Blau, the answer has to do with the Israeli state not being willing to own up to the ways in which it discriminated against Mizrahi immigrants during the early years of statehood. In both affairs, like the Yemenite children affair, in the ringroom affair, all of them are Mizrahi children. And you can't ignore this fact. 
why it happened only to the Mizrahi population. The groups claim that the reason is because uh, racism and the Israeli state discriminated against them. The way that the Yemenite children's affair and the ringworm affair have played out tells us a lot about how the Mizrahi experience in Israel has evolved since the early decades of the state. During the late 1940s and 50s, the prevailing ethos was that in order for the fledgling state to survive against all odds, everyone had to sacrifice for the good of the country. Mizrahi Jews were no exception. In fact, because they were seen as primitive and to a certain extent undesirable, the Ashkenazi Zionist leadership treated them more callously and had less concern for their well-being. And although some Mizrahi groups protested at the time, overall they didn't have the means or infrastructure to take legal action. But several decades later, the situation had changed. During the 90s, something happened in Israel, and the civil discourse started to flourish. And this is a part of uh, an expression in the Torah arena of uh, this flourish of uh, civil rights. So groups like the Yemenite uh, Children Affair and the Ringworm Affair during the 90s started to claim their rights, saying we deserve compensation. For the first time, they went through the naming, blaming, and claiming stages. The Yemenite Children's Affair and the Ringworm Affair remain unresolved. In the end, Blau says, truly resolving both affairs will require the Israeli state to listen to the victims and to take responsibility for the unjust and unfair ways it treated Mizrahi immigrants many decades ago. I still think that a transitional justice process is needed here because it will never, otherwise, it will never end. It will never end. So only a process, a very clear process of a transitional justice will bring those affairs to an end. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The podcast is produced by Conversa. The executive producer is Maya Barzilai. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like the show, please give it a five-star review. Thanks for listening.